Well, we're returning this morning to 1 Samuel, so you'll have to get your head back into 1 Samuel after a little detour uh, about our vision statement. We're going back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, the Old Testament reading. That's our text. Saul is still in the process of coming to power. He's the first king in Israel. And the last time we saw him, after searching for donkeys, he ends up encountering Samuel and being privately anointed as the king of Israel. And so what's going on this morning in this text is that what happened privately is being confirmed publicly. In what is really a very strange kind of a selection and coronation ceremony. So we'll look at the text under three headings. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The prophet and the process and the politics. So first the prophet, Samuel, the prophet, he summons the people to the Lord at Mizpah, It's not explicitly said what this assembly is for, but we can assume that almost everybody would think it was to pick a king. Because the Lord had told Samuel, they want a king, give them a king. And all Samuel did at that time was just dismiss the people and send them home. So now he assembles them. Now... Solemn social events are such that if something unscripted happens, it's usually pretty memorable. I don't mean something funny. That can be memorable, too. Something funny which breaks the ice. But here I'm thinking about something that's considered inappropriate for the occasion. Something which breaks the protocol of the occasion and violates the sensibilities of the assembled guests. There's a well-known example of this in Presbyterian history from the, from the Church of Scotland in the 18th century, 1773. And it involves a situation where the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland imposed a man, a man named David Thompson, on a parish, on a congregation, which did not want him to be their pastor. In fact, they had voted against calling him to be pastor. Overwhelmingly. And the presbytery did not approve him for ministry in that church. Yet they were overruled by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And so at the man's installation, there was a moderator by the name of Robert Findlay. He reviews in public with the man all the parish's votes against him. Now this is the man's installation to ministry in this church. He appeals for the man to back down from seeking installation. And then when the man wouldn't, without the normal set of prayers in their book of church order, without asking the man the questions, he just says, you're installed. It's very uncomfortable. But it was a memorable installation service. You can read about it in Thomas McCree, the great Scottish theologian's book, The Unity of the Church. So, Samuel is about to convene a ceremony here, and he's about to violate the protocol. He's going to speak a word which will reign on what would have otherwise been a very pleasant, nice gathering. 
You have the nation. You have its dignitaries assembled. And Samuel begins with the standard weighty preface that only prophets dare to use. This is what the Lord God, the God of Israel, says. And then he gives a little brief set of opening remarks. Right? This is his, his ser- a little sermonette. The sermonette has two points. It's very easy to follow this sermon. God has been gracious. You have been wicked. That's the, this is Samuel's inaugural address for the first king of Israel. I have brought you up. God has been gracious. I brought you up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and from all the kingdoms that oppressed you. Notice, notice the, the political echoes already. I delivered you from that big empire that you were afraid of. And from all the kingdoms, all the nations around which oppressed you, the nations that you love to imitate and that you want to be like, which, which provoked you to ask for a king in the first place. I've already delivered you from Egypt and the nation states in the ancient Near East that threatens you. Nevertheless, you decided you wanted your own king. And so the second point is, but you've rejected the Lord your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. It's a two-point sermon. It's the history of the world in nine words. God has been gracious. You have been wicked. You said no, Samuel says. You said no. Appoint us a king. Imagine someone talking like this at the first inaugural ball for the nation of Israel's monarchy. It's it's much like John the Baptist's opening foray into preaching, where he has people coming to him who want to be baptized, who are responding to his message, and they gather, and there's this long line of people that Jesus is in the line somewhere to be baptized. And John the Baptist turns to them and says, You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath which is to come? If the Apostle James were present, he would have said something like we heard read, You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world, in this case, wanting to be like the nations, is enmity with God? It's just not good form. You can imagine some in the crowd, right, saying, Samuel, aren't we over this? Like you rebuked our desire for a king and you gave us this long, scathing, diatribe sermon in chapter 8. Can't you preach on anything else? But we know, Samuel, we know this displeases the Lord. But we also know that the Lord is going to grant our request. So have you gathered us here again to tell us that we're wicked? To which the answer is in large part, yes. So that's that's the opening proclamation of the word. God is gracious. You are wicked. And then, right where you'd expect some sort of judgment or penalty or something like this from Samuel, he says basically, okay, let's do this king thing now. He's a very reluctant moderator. But nevertheless, he says, all right, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. We're going to get on with picking a king. So it's a strange pattern, right? We've we've seen it rehearsed before. They want a king. 
They want a certain type of politics. God says it's a rejection of him. They say, we don't care. God says, okay, you can have your king. And this new thing is born in the ancient world that stands between the anarchy of tribes and clans that you see in the whole book of Judges and all the surrounding empires in Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, right? In between empire and in between anarchy, you get now the nation state. You know, you read Western scholars, they think the nation state is the result of the uh, European wars in the 17th century and the Westphalian peace, you know, 1648 and all that, and we got the nation state. No, here's the, this is the nation state right here. It's a, it's a form of political order that's between anarchy and empire which is probably why God concedes to it. But Samuel, he's reminding them of something that's going to be easy to forget. Once they have a palace and a throne and a city and an expanded kingdom and a standing military and international prestige, Samuel says, look, I don't want you to forget that the whole thing with all of its splendor is a kind of judgment. It's at best a concession in as much as it entails rejecting God as king. I often think that institutions, denominations are an an example of this. They, They forget the broken background in which they labor. Right? And then... Everybody acts inside their own denomination or their own institution as if they're the one true church and their processes and their procedures and everything, as if they don't exist in a sea of fragmentation. And so no one stands up at the general assembly like Samuel does here and says, our very existence as a denomination, as a fractured piece of Christendom, is enveloped in judgment. I move that we dissolve the denomination. No, no, everything has to be treated as if it's inviolably sacred and holy and came down off of Mount Sinai. So everybody just turns a blind eye to the origins of these things, often divisive origins. Well, Samuel doesn't forget. He's not going to pretend that everything is sacred after the ceremony is over. He remembers that there's a deep, dark background behind the business-as-usual stuff. Let's get on with it mentality. And so he registers his protest loudly, knowing, knowing it's not going to be heeded. That's the prophet. That's the prophet's calling. To say the seemingly absurd stuff that nobody wants to hear and that after you're done talking, people are going to go back to the status quo anyway. So that brings you to the second point, which is this process. They proceed to pick the first king of the chosen people at Samuel's direction by lots. Which I can't help but think this is one way of Samuel saying, um, I'm going to have a little fun with this. It's very strange because Samuel knows who the king is. He's already privately anointed him. So why why does he choose to have the king picked again by lots? 
It's almost a form of mockery. But but there's some method to his madness, I think. The first thing is this. Lots are public. They're impartial. They're under the sovereign control of the Lord. So in theory, anyone could be picked here. So using the lots is a way of saying, look, I'm I'm Samuel here. I'm not going to pick the king. It'll be the Lord's public choice. But there's other things going on. In choosing lots, there's this faint reminder that the whole thing is under a shadow. Lots are used like this publicly twice in Scripture, both times in association with judgments, with discovering a culprit. So you can even imagine some people might be a little nervous now, actually. There's a kind of ambiguity that Samuel has now placed into the inauguration festivities that's maybe not quite in the program. People would be starting to think, are we picking a king? Or are we doing something else here? Because the last time lots were used like this on the whole nation was after the military defeat at Ai in the book of Judges, and the winner of that lot was executed. So anyway... This is not a judgment ritual per se, but the association is there. And thirdly, it shows Samuel's confidence as a prophet. He believes the Lord has singled out Saul to be the king. And although it's statistically improbable, remember, this is a whole nation. We don't know exactly how they did it, but we know they drew lots. It's the equivalent of rolling dice. He's sure that out of the whole nation, where your statistical probability of picking Saul, the son of Kish, is zero, he's sure that he'll be picked. So they go through it, and they pick a tribe first. They pick the tribe of Benjamin. Now listen, if you're a Jew, and you're you're an astute, somewhat studious Jew, and you're in this crowd, and you know your Torah pretty well, you're already thinking... This is, something's not right. You know why? Because your Torah tells you that a dying Jacob said that the kingship and the scepter will belong to the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Benjamin. And we're picking a king, and we just pick, we're picking someone from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you might have to be a really sharp person in the crowd to get this. You'd have to really study your Torah, but it's right there. So what is that? What are you thinking? You're thinking, well, whatever king we're picking here, He's not going to last long. And he's having, no, he's having no dynasty. So it's another reminder, right, that the whole thing is under a shadow. It's under a shadow. So they go, they go through the procedure, and eventually they pick Saul, the son of Kish. He's taken by Lot. So then another odd thing happens. The whole evening is strange. They look for him, and they can't find him. He's not there. The whole thing has a sort of madcap quirkiness about it. And, but when the text says he was not found, the writer of Samuel, who is very skillful as a narrator, is intentionally echoing the not finding of the donkeys which he referred to almost a dozen times before that. It's as if the narrator is saying, your king is a donkey. It's farcical, really. 
So they can't find them, so they decide they're going to pray. They're going to pray. This is a people who rejected God, said no to the word of the Lord, but when it comes down to what they want, much like us, then they pray. Now they're like, we think we'll pray. They're sort of ironically forced to seek God even as they act against his will. So the Lord graciously points out where he's hiding. He's hiding among the military gear. Why is he hiding? He already knows he's the king. Samuel's picked him out privately and anointed him. He's had the spirit come upon him. He's afraid. We're not sure exactly why he's afraid, but the one who is going to be the king to go out before us and fight our battles, right? That's why they wanted a king, is comically hiding with the military gear. So they bring him out, they stand him among the people, and what does the text tell us? Here's what it tells us. It searches down the list of of wonderful qualities of the king that's been chosen, and it picks this one out. He's really tall. He's taller than the others. And Samuel makes this definitive pronouncement. Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? It's interesting, right? God God still chose this king, even though God didn't want them to have a king. There's a kind of relentless sovereignty of God in this whole story where God is not checkmated or evaded because he just doesn't play the game on the same level as everybody else. God is not, as I always say in, in class here, God is not like a big first domino who knocks the other dominoes over. He's a transcendent, ineffable cause of things. So you can do what he doesn't want you to do. He's still sovereign. He is, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? And then Samuel says, there's no one like him among all the people. It's really a less, that's the whole installation speech right there. It's less than rousing. It sounds a little bit like that Scottish installation service. There's no one like him among all the people? which That's at best superficially true. Here's what distinguishes Saul from all the other people so far. One, he's the one who won the lot. Two, he's tall. Those are his qualifications for kingship in Israel. That's it. That's Samuel's pro-Saul PR. But you know what? It's good enough because the mob wants what the mob wants. And the people say, long live the king. And that brings me to the politics of this. The third point. And here I think it gets interesting. Samuel gets down to establishing order in this kingship arrangement. And this little piece of text is of crucial historical importance. Again, there's a reason in God's wisdom that he allows Israel to establish a polity that's between tribal, clan-based anarchy and empire. Verse 25, it says, Samuel explained to the people, in the presence of the new king and the people now, now notice this phrase. This phrase sounds like it comes from the 17th or 18th century. He explained to them the rights and the duties of kingship. Now, you might might think this is boring. But this is a root of modern liberty. I'll come back to this in a minute. 
So previously in his diatribe, Samuel had said, this is the justice you will get if you pick a king. Here he says, this is the justice the king is required to give you. In chapter 8, the sermon was that the king will claim his own rights. Here, it's these are what his actual legal rights are. In chapter 8, he warned that the king would take and take and take. That he was law, he'd be lawless. Here Samuel says, I'm going to place limits on his power. So that this will be, in design at least, a constitutional monarchy. Of the kind they later had in England for a millennium or so. Or more. A constitutional monarchy. Think about this. This will be a constitutional monarchy. You're going to have a king. You're going to have a constitution. The constitution is going to be written. Samuel wrote this down, the text says, and laid it up in a box. It'll be written and it'll be public. It'll be known by the presence of the people who will know their rights and their duties and the king will know his rights and his duty. This will be a king who is not like the kings of other nations. Remember, Israel said, we want a king so we can be just like the other nations. God says, basically, I'm going to give you a king, but he's not going to be a king like the other nations. He's going to be tied down to this constitution. This is a new political order in the history of the world. Now, again, when you read moderns, they act like this stuff came out of the Enlightenment. Almost all the time, they're talking about how the 17th century and the 18th century and the 19th century gave us this and gave us constitutional liberties. It's 3,000 years ago is where the roots of these things are. The king chosen by God is really then a vice-regent, a king under the supreme kingship of the Lord. And this means that the king is under the law. And chapter 8 already showed us the king is not divine. The monarchy is a human institution. Again, they did not think like this in Egypt or in Babylon. Or anywhere in the ancient world. The monarchy was God. The pharaohs in Egypt were gods. Their word was law. Here you have a monarchy which is a human institution, which can be criticized. And yet there's another blow. 3,000 years ago to the divine right of kings. The king is not above the law. He's bound by the law. In a world where the king was the source of law, this king will be bound by a law outside of himself. So that little phrase where Samuel lets the people and the king know the rights and the duties of kingship is critical. And it's surely included this famous passage from Deuteronomy 17, which is another law in the Torah binding the king. That earlier piece of legislation was certainly included by Samuel in the duties and rights of kingship. And that earlier legislation in Deuteronomy 17, it forbade the king from doing three things. He could not multiply horses, could not multiply wives, and could not multiply gold and silver. All three of those things are really three ways of saying the same thing. When the king can't multiply horses, you're doing a couple things. You're saying he has a cap on military spending. He can't keep increasing the military budget. 
When he can't multiply horses, he can have no imperial ambition. He cannot invade other companies. We will not let him. You can have a nation state. You can have a standing military. You can defend yourself. But you cannot multiply horses because I will not sanction imperialism. And for the same reason, you can't take on many wives. This is probably not primarily about the sexual propriety of the king. These marriages would be political marriages with other monarchs and rulers in the region. Like Solomon had 700 wives. Those wives are political marriages, and they create a situation where you have international intrigue and treaties and alignments. And so when you say to the king in Deuteronomy, you cannot multiply wives, you are again limiting his international prestige. And the same thing when you say to the king, you cannot accumulate huge amounts of silver and gold, much less print yourself huge amounts of money. This king will be limited in territory, limited in power, limited in international intrigue, limited in money. The Deuteronomy 17 laws on kingship are a charter, again, 3,000 years before the Enlightenment, on the limited state, the limited constitutional state, which became such an enormous thing in the history of the West. And you know what else it's required in Deuteronomy 17? It's required for the king to write for himself a scroll, a copy of the law. He has to write the whole Torah out for himself and read it all the days of his life, the text says, so that he might learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of the law. This would be revolutionary. The king is now bound to a law. He's not the source of a law. And this changed the world. If you want to see this in fuller detail, there's a book by a Jewish scholar named Jeremiah Unterman called Justice for All. How the Jewish Bible revolutionized ethics. All of this stuff we take for granted, a great deal of it is rooted back here. And that Deuteronomy 17 text goes on to say that the king who reads the law shall not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. Right? That's the end with all this pretentious royals stuff. All the trappings of the monarchy. The king is just another person in Israel. Under the law, not better than anyone else. He shouldn't turn from the law to the right or the left. Then his descendants will have a long reign. So let me conclude. I want to make two points in concluding. The word and the king. So it's very important to see that ultimately here the word, in this case the Torah, but ultimately the word, not any person, not any office, rules in Israel. There's a deep sense here, which has been transmitted to the West through Christianity and Judaism, that the word is king. Or more precisely, and Calvin was very fond of this language, God is king, but he rules through the scepter of his word. And in the civil realm, that means public written constitutions, delineating rights and duties. That's that's what's driving the whole scene here. That's why Samuel's present, and he's the MC. This word, 
stands above all earthly powers, right? That's that wonderful line from Luther's, a mighty fortress is our God. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abide it. And it's because of this passage, this passage, that the 16th century Scottish reformer, John Knox, called for Mary, Queen of Scots, he called for her arrest, on charges of adultery and abetting the murder of her own husband. It was this text that Knox appealed to. There is no absolute power in the monarch, king or queen. And it was in part due to this text, this text, that the great 17th century theologian and pastor Samuel Rutherford wrote his famous book, Lex Rex, The Law is King. The king is not the law, the law is king. This text is actually politically turning the ancient world upside down. In a world where the king was law, Samuel comes along and says, you can have a king, but the law is going to be king. And where this word is rejected, what do you get? You get a bloated messianic state. And that brings us to the king. It's no surprise Saul is not going to keep the Constitution, the duties and rights of kingship. Neither will David. Neither will Samuel. I mean, neither will Solomon. Neither will any king in Israel. They will not accept the constraints, the humiliation, the subjection, the obedience that the Constitution binds the king to. The only Torah-keeping constitutional monarch will be the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where this history goes. He is the Lord's chosen one. When Samuel stands there and he puts the king of Israel and he puts Saul in front of the people and says, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? That points you to the one the Lord has chosen. When he says of Saul, there is no one like like him among all the people... It's kind of humorous, but it points to the Lord Jesus Christ of whom we can say there is no one like him among all the people. Right? It is he alone who upholds the duties and rights of kingship. Because in Christ alone, the word is king because the king is the word. The word is king because the king is the word. And don't miss the irony of this story here then, the ironic twist. It's just because Jesus... The eternal word of God accepts the constraints of humiliation and weakness and obedience and service and limits, right? It's just because of that that he establishes a just kingdom and an infinite domain. That's why his monarchy alone, his dynasty, if you will, alone endures forever. Ultimate, right? Infinite, boundless, glorious. And that's why, on the basis of his indestructible life, we can say, Long live the king, for he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen.